You are listening to the In Defense of Plants podcast, a show designed to cure plant blindness around the globe. If you would like to give your support to In Defense of Plants, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants, and together we can help cure plant blindness one episode at a time. Hello everyone and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I'm super excited to announce that we have some new merch available. Head over to teespring.com slash stores slash plants and check out all of the great shirts and other items we have for sale. Of course, they are adorned with the beautiful Indefensive Plants logo, and you can get them in a variety of sizes and colors. We're talking t-shirts, hoodies, long sleeve shirts, and even a tote bag or some mugs. The best part is, is 10% of every purchase is being donated to the Rainforest Trust. Alright, what do I have for you today? Today is another paleobotanical adventure, although this time we're going back roughly 49 million years to the Eocene. The Eocene was a vastly different time in Earth's history, although it's got a lot of implications for global warming and our understanding of how ecosystems, specifically the plant communities, respond to such rapid changes in their environment. Joining us is Dr. Sarah Allen, Associate Professor at Penn State University in Altoona, and she specializes on a few formations largely located in Wyoming. Now, because Earth was so warm at this time period, palm trees were found that far north, along with a lot of other subtropical plants. But I won't steal any of her thunder. I'll let her describe what was going on with the flora at that time period. This is fascinating work, and again, it's got a lot of implications for understanding how biological communities respond to rapid changes in their climate. All right, everyone, without further ado, here is my discussion with Dr. Allen. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Sarah Allen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? All right, well, thank you so much for inviting me, Matt. I'm happy to talk with you. I am a brand-new assistant professor at Penn State Altoona, which is in south-central Pennsylvania. And uh, here I primarily teach botany and introductory biology courses. Um, But my research is in paleobotany, mostly in Cenozoic paleofloras of Western North America, um, looking at the taxonomic composition of those floras and the paleoclimate and paleoecology. Prior to this, I did a postdoc at Flores and Fossil Beds National Monument in central Colorado, and I did my PhD at the University of Florida with um, Dr. Stephen Manchester. Awesome. You've had an exciting trajectory, and it's so great to see someone come out of a postdoc with an actual faculty position. So congratulations, first and foremost, on that. But it's interesting, you mentioned Florida, and that was actually where we had first crossed paths, although it took us an email a few years later to to figure that out. So I guess the big question here is, is you do all of this surrounding plants to some degree or another, and you're able to garner a lot of information from the, the fossils you study, but... Did you come to this from more of a paleo perspective originally, or were you sort of a nature nut that turned botanist that decided fossil plants were the interesting thing to pursue? Well, uh, I got into paleobotany actually as an undergraduate, and my undergraduate degree was actually in geoscience. I had a long time interest as a kid in the natural world and collected rocks and minerals. I would spend my allowance money on rocks and minerals. (laughs) 
And I did have a cactus collection growing up, so that was something that my my grandma got me into, actually. So I had a little bit of both, and I got into grad school, and I was initially going to double major in geoscience and biology, but that was going to put me on the extended time plan, which wasn't uh. economical. So I ended up majoring in geology, but my undergraduate advisor, which I think you spoke to on your podcast, Dr. Nan Arendt, and she is a paleobotanist, paleoecologist, and invited me to do research with her. And that kind of opened my eyes to the world of paleobotany. Um, I'd never really been thinking, oh, I want to be a paleontologist when I grow up. That never really <laughs> crossed mind. Um, so I guess, you know, you hear a lot of little kids who love dinosaurs and love fossils. And I was definitely a science person and loved outside, loved rocks, liked learning about things. But I, I didn't really see this for myself until I found that it really merged my interests of geology and botany, which I ended up, I really liked the botanical side as well. So Excellent. That's a fun trajectory. And I think a lot of people probably feel the same way as you just don't know until you've had someone sit you down and say, well, here's some opportunities for you. And then you go, oh, that sounds amazing. But I, I love that this was kind of all centered around sort of combining a lot of your loves and interests into something that is exciting in that you're right. exploring this unknown, but also vitally important because as we'll get into, a lot of this has big implications for ecology and climate change and the history of life, evolution of life. There's so much you can take away from your work that's, uh, it, it seems like you found the right place. Yeah, no, it's, it is really exciting and you can, you really can take it in many different directions and there's no one paleobotanist who's the same. Every paleobotanist you talk to will have kind of different interests and different subspecialties, which for being a relatively small field, it has a lot of big questions and big impact, I think. Yeah. And, you know, just based on my limited knowledge of the field, it seems like it was one that, you know, people had known there were plant fossils for a long time, but the interest in plant fossils kind of came late in the game compared to more of the vertebrate fossils and, and some of the other sort of impression fossils that people can get of, of animals or marine invertebrates or something like that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's true just with modern botany, there's kind of this trying to overcome plant blindness. We <laughs> have that in paleontology as well. When, when I say, oh I'm, a, oh, I'm a paleontologist, nobody ever thinks of the plants. So like, first, it's people confuse it sometimes with archaeology. So they think, oh, you dig up artifacts and look at ancient civilizations. So that's the first kind of <laughs> misconception that I have to dispel. And then they're like, oh, you're, you're digging for bones. And I'm like, no, actually, I'm not. I, I look for fossil plants. So usually people are then like, oh, okay. But then, you know, I totally try and sell it to them how much more awesome the fossil plants are. And without the fossil plants, we wouldn't have all the fossil animals. So It's true. I mean, as it is today, it was in the past, and it will be into the future. But I'm curious about someone kind of going fresh into this field you know, if you don't know what's out there, you can't say, oh, I want to study the Mesozoic flora of this region or the, the Triassic flora of this region. You know, what was it like actually coming into this field with, with new eyes? And then how do you circle the drain and come down to a, a period of time or an area that you would like to study? And then, you know, how did you end up in, in, in the rock strata that you, that you did most of your work on? Yeah, so for me, it, it just kind of, that's how the cards fell out. Um, I really didn't have a specific time period that I was interested in. It really was influenced by my research mentors up to this point. So my undergraduate advisor, 
she introduced me to paleobotany. I started my work looking at a late Cretaceous floor from eastern Montana. Um, I found that I really enjoyed that, enjoyed the questions that came out of that project. And I liked working with angiosperms flowering plants. So if you if you like angiosperms, you need to be at least in the early Cretaceous to the present because we, we haven't found older angiosperm fossils. So that, and then a lot of times it's because there's a lot of places you can't always answer your first question. So it's really where the material is available and what you find there. So it's kind of opposite of more traditional experimental science where you, you set a question and then you set up an experiment, you kind of follow the scientific method and you answer it. I feel like in, in my field, it's more you find some stuff and then you work backwards in a way. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you get something and you're like, okay, what, what questions can I answer with this material? So for me, it was uh, like my graduate work. I ended up getting into that because there was already material from that site and no one had really studied it. I did field work there multiple times, collected a lot more material and it just turned into a really exciting project. So I could have chosen something else, but that was kind of ready to go, not studied. And there was a lot of unanswered questions. So very cool. And sometimes it's those serendipitous moments that just, you know, make a lifetime of passion and exploration and excitement for people. And it, it certainly seems like, as you said, the cards laid in the right direction for you here. But let's focus in. Um, you know, you mentioned it briefly in the introduction, but what time period do you specialize in, or at least where most of your research has been in? Where Set the scene. How long ago was this? Uh, and where geographically was this during that time period? Sure. So most of my uh, more recent work has been focused in the Eocene. So the Eocene started about 56 million years ago, goes up to about 34 million years. So I'm mostly working in the greater Rocky Mountain regions. My biggest project is in southwestern Wyoming, Sweetwater County. So that's in the uh, Bridger Formation. And I've also done some work in uh, the Florissant Formation of central Colorado. That's 34 million years old. So Florissant Formation, right at the end of the Eocene, the Bridger Formation where it was 49 million years old, and that's right at the end of the early Eocene Climactic Optimum. Ooh. So this was one of the warmest periods of the Cenozoic of the last 65 million years. So we had this kind of peak of warmth. The, the Earth was known as a hothouse or greenhouse at this time. We were finding palm trees at really high latitudes, crocodiles, turtles, living in areas we would never find them today because the earth was much warmer, likely no ice at the poles, sea level would have been higher, just generally temperatures would have been a lot warmer, a lot um, more equitable. So you're seeing a lot of kind of tropical and subtropical elements to the flora at places that are surprising when you think of <laughs> kind of today's world. So yeah, I mean, having lived in Wyoming, I can say that Wyoming feels, to me, one of the most wintry states I've ever experienced. And uh, to think about, you know, palm trees being up there is alarming. Even if you don't have familiarity with the extant flora of Wyoming, it's 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 weird. And, and I think, you know, this hothouse globe analogy is really fitting for that time period because it, it really screams to the fact that, globally speaking, it was a much different time period uh, than we currently have, although, you know, we could wax poetic about where we're heading. Um, but I'm curious, too, about... I, I always like to think about it this way, is if you jumped in a time machine and you had some idea of floral or plant diversity as we know it today, 
if you jumped in the time machine and went back to you know your site in Wyoming, would someone with familiarity with plants recognize the landscape? Would it be familiar, although you know, albeit different species composition, would you recognize familiar groups, families, genus, species? What what would you see, roughly speaking? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first of all, if you find that time machine, let me know because I want to be one of the first customers. Um, that's always always a paleobotanist dream. Like, man, we could really put put the full picture together if we could just go back and see all of this. Yeah. But no, I mean, at this time in the past, you would definitely recognize elements of, of the flora. All the, the families are modern families. When you get down to the genera, there are some extinct genera. And there's a lot of extinct species, but you would recognize definitely things at the family level. Uh, this site, it, like I said, has a mixture of warm temperate, some subtropical, potentially even some, some tropical taxa. So you would be seeing a forested environment that would have had a lot of vegetation. There would be uh, full-size trees, vines growing on those trees, definitely an understory. The understory material doesn't preserve that well. Mm. Um, but definitely a nice mix of subtropical and temperate elements. So a lot of fossils end up getting preserved in more lowland environments. So often what we find from the macrofossils, so these are things like leaves, fossil wood, if we have fossil flowers, fruits, and seeds, those are going to be representative of more of the local flora. And in this site, those tend to be showing us that the conditions were pretty warm, but then we, the, the microflora, so the fossilized pollen and spores, kind of gives us a different picture because that's representative of a little bit more of the regional flora, so things growing at higher elevations, so pollen and spores blowing in. Mm. So you get more diversity, but it's a broader look at the flora. But you would definitely recognize things. I mean, at those higher elevations, there were things in the pine family, things in the Jubilandaceae, the walnut family, things like alders and elms, all of that at the higher elevations. At the lower elevations, there was things in the sycamore family, the willow family. We had palm trees, things in Icastinaceae. What's interesting is you there's also opens up the door of a lot of biogeographic questions, but I don't want to get into that just yet. But sure, sure. Yeah, we can tackle that in a little bit. I don't know if that answers your question, but you would definitely recognize things. It, it might be a different composition, and you might think this looks like I should be down by the Gulf Coast or over in China today, definitely not south uh, western Wyoming. Yeah, I kept thinking of the Gulf Coast as you were describing that or someplace, you know, along the panhandle of Florida or, or eastern Texas. But again, this idea that a lot of things we would recognize were already in place or representatives of those groups were in place, but the players were different. It was a no analog community to something that we have today, despite having some similarities. But what amazes me the most is you always think of the fossil record as being extremely fragmentary, and I'm sure in many ways it definitely is. But the degree of resolution you just hinted at is quite remarkable. So in terms of the formations you work in, how did all of this get preserved so well that you can even make these sorts of conclusions about what was going on at different elevations and seasons at the time? And then we can kind of jump into it in more nitty gritty. But where where are you finding these fossils? What kind of sediments or what kind of environment would it have been that, that lended to the kind of resolution you're getting? So in southwestern Wyoming, this was primarily a, a fluvial environment. So this was things like uh, meandering streams, deltas, uh, swamps, floodplains. So it's it's variable, 
To get this really high resolution in the macrofossils where you have things preserved, you need calm environments. So things like swamps, ponds are more likely to preserve things. And you're most likely to get that high level of preservation in the macrofossils. You're going to get the elements that are growing kind of right around the edge of those water bodies. You tend to get a little bit of a bias towards uh, things that are woody taxa. That's a lot more common in the fossil record. And you also tend to get a bias of things that are growing around where they end up being preserved. Makes sense. And this particular site in southwestern Wyoming is really unusual because we do have all plant organs preserved. Mm. So there's petrified wood, leaves, all reproductive organs, and the dispersed pollen and spores. So that's relatively unusual. And having all of those organs allows a more detailed look at floral composition and other aspects than if you just have a single plant organ that you're trying to get information from. And a lot of this, it also depends on, you need really fine-grained sediments. Um, those help preserve the resolution. So something like a mudstone or a siltstone, smaller grain size, preserves details, so you're able to see leaf veination a lot more clearly. Um, I have... Flowers with in-situ pollen still preserved Wow, nine million years. That's pretty wild. Whereas if you're preserving things in a coarser sediment, like a sandstone, you can still get a lot of information, but you're losing some of that fine resolution where you may not have the highest orders of the veins and the leaves preserved just because you're on a coarser sediment. So, I mean, that's just how it falls out, but um, it is helpful when you are lucky enough to find things preserved in fine-grained environments because you you get that resolution. It's a little bit better. Yeah, and looking at at least a couple of the photos in some of your publications, when you show the scanning microscope image of pollen on, a, a, on, a, on an anther or something like that, and then you show the real today version of that, it's almost like, oh, you just put some color. Oh my gosh, that's two different things there. It's, it's remarkable, but... What I'm hearing here is that, you know, you're not specializing in, say, fossilized leaves only or fossilized flowers or even just palynology. It kind of seems like you, in doing this investigation, had to look at all levels of complexity within this fossil record. So I guess we'll start at being in the field. You know, I would assume going into these formations, you have to kind of have a game plan in mind or you have to go in at least with some caution. If we want this kind of material, we have to collect it in this way. So I guess... To, the exciting thing to me is that you kind of went from field to lab to publication. You you saw kind of all steps of this process. So where did, what's it like in the field? And then what do you do from the field to getting it back to the lab? And then from the lab to kind of going through all the layers of complexity to, to get these sorts of data out of the fossil record? Well, that's a great question. And um, it happens slowly. I'll definitely say that. Um, not as slowly as these things are preserved in the rock for 49 million years, but it's definitely a process. I love fieldwork. Fieldwork is, is really rewarding. You're the first person to see a fossil that has been buried for millions of years, potentially. So going out in the field, I mean, everyone kind of has a different approach to fieldwork. My site out there in southwestern Wyoming is it's about an hour drive from the nearest modest-sized town. So it's it, you're kind of signing up for primitive camping and living. You know, you have your car, but I'm sleeping in a tent and <laughs> cooking meals with a little stove. And there's no bathroom facilities, nothing like that. So you kind of, you get used to that. And it's, it's actually really nice to be unplugged from technology. Yeah. But 
it's good to go out, have some kind of questions in mind. So you, you know, usually what the gaps are and whether you need more um, material from this particular quarry, or you want to look at the geology in a little bit more detail, or you want to do some kind of census or survey. So generally, there are some target questions and you just hope that it, it works out or maybe you want to find a new site. This site, like I said, had already been found. It was originally discovered by a librarian who lived locally in that area and she um, brought it to the attention of the scientific community. Nice. And there's actually a genus that's now named after her to okay. honor her finding the site. But um, yeah, I mean, days tend to be sitting at a quarry, splitting. In this case, it was mostly shale and siltstone. That site tends to be very windy. So um, <laughs> I had times where the fossils actually blew away. No. If you were working at a site that was really kind of flaky, small pieces of rock. And we would be out there with goggles because you would get like so much sand in your eyes oh. and 40 mile an hour wind gusts. <laughs> and you're kind of like hunkered up against the side of these badlands. So today the, the vegetation there is really limited to just some sagebrush and some things in the brassicaceae, the mustard family. There's, there's really not much in terms of extant vegetation. There's no trees or anything like that. So it's a huge contrast when you're digging and you're finding, you know, petrified trees and leaves of things that you know were full-size trees. And you're looking around at the modern landscape and you're like, this does not match at all. <laughs> and then when you find stuff, you decide in the field whether you want to take it back to the lab or not. In most of my work, you actually wrap them in toilet paper. So if you're ever with a paleobotanist, it's likely that there will be plenty of toilet paper. <laughs> These, to get back to the lab, can be um, shipped, or most cases you have a car, and you. when I was in Florida, we would just drive them all back to Florida. Wow. So kind of test the suspension in your car with many, many rocks. <laughs> yeah. And I should mention that all of these sites are on public land, and if people want to do this, you do need to go through a permitting process. Right. Um, that, that permitting process is relatively new for paleobotany. It's been in place for vertebrate paleontology for a very long time. But I just want to mention to any of your listeners that they do need the proper permits before they go out and get large quantities of paleontological material. Sure, because this is public land. We, we all own it. And, and this is these are things with scientific value. So to just go hog wild and, and again, right. poaching fossils is scientifically very similar to poaching extant plants. And, and, and that it robs not only the public, but the scientific community of, of data and knowledge that, that we can all enjoy. Definitely. And paleobotany really depends on the work of amateurs. So I, I want them to keep doing their work because they often find the sites for us because, you know, right now I'm living in Pennsylvania. I'm not able to go out on the weekend and just hmm. poke around. So we really do rely on the work of amateurs. But I did want to mention that you do have to go through a permitting process now to work on public lands and private land. You need to have the permission of the landowner. Um, but anyway, so we're now back in the lab. It, it is a process to unwrap everything, get it curated. Specimens ideally uh, will end up being curated in a nationally recognized museum um, and they will be housed there long term so that other researchers can go and visit them, whether it's uh, things that are unpublished or things that are published and they want to compare to material they have. So that's a process just kind of getting everything unwrapped from the field, get specimen numbers on it, get it into databases. So that's an initial process. And um, most museums have 
staff members that help with that process. And those are very valuable members of the scientific community. And then that's when the, the research kind of starts at that point is you can have some like exciting research moments in the field, but you're not really getting into the nitty gritty of the research until you're back in the lab in most cases. Sure. And with that, it really depends what you're doing. I mean, for me, a lot of that would entail photography, describing specimens. My field is very visual, so everything pretty much needs needs a picture to go along with it. And then if I'm doing more taxonomy questions, I do a lot of comparisons with modern material going to herbaria or using online herbarium resources and diving into the the modern taxonomic literature. So it really depends what my questions are at the time. Yeah, and that's interesting in and of itself just to think of, especially in the time period that you're working with and the groups that you're working with, how much you need to familiarize yourself with extant material, so species that are currently on the planet today. And it's, it's, again, it's amazing that there's just so much interchange there to, to help both fields out. But, you know, do you think this has strengthened your understanding of, say, palms and pines and, and some of those other subtropical floras of the world today? Definitely. And when I came into this project, I didn't have a very strong botany background. So I've kind of been learning the botany as I go and um, now that I that, that I teach botany, um, it's been really re- rewarding to kind of share this with everyone else. But no, it, it really does because you kind of have an unknown fossil and, you know, usually pretty quickly you can at least put it in a broad category. Is this an angiosperm? Is this a gymnosperm? Is this a fern? And then you're like, okay, let's start narrowing it down with that within that category. And so you kind of go through these initial elimination processes. Then you could still have, because there's so much convergent evolution in the plant kingdom, you could still have, if you're an angiosperm, maybe 30 candidate families that this fossil might belong to. I mean, that's just throwing out a number. But especially when you're looking at something like a leaf and it has an entire margin with no teeth, and it has looping secondary venation, and maybe you don't have the highest levels of venation. You're just kind of staring at it, and you're thinking, well, this could be one of many, many things. <laughs> so that that can be challenging and frustrating, and, and the more information you have, the better. But it's it's definitely a process of elimination. There's, there's some things that I know I'm never going to be able to identify this. I can say this is some sort of dicotyledonous leaf but that's all I know and there's other times where you're like okay this has some really distinctive features but then it's kind of just this big hunt uh, in the literature and the herbarium talking to experts if I think okay it might be this order might be this family and I'm stumbling upon literature that the same author is continuously working on this family I'm like oh they might be a specialist in this and I'm definitely happy to reach out to them send them pictures of the fossil material and say does does this have the characters of the group you work on and um, that's opened up the door to some nice collaborations as well I feel like it's really important that we work together as paleobotanists and the modern botanical community because it, it helps them out too because if people work on a modern group, they, they're always like totally jazzed if there's fossil material of, of their group. So yeah, yeah, but definitely it's strengthened my understanding of, of modern groups and I'm definitely a generalist. <laughs> Some paleobotanists specialize and they'll work on a single plant organ or a single family or a single group. And I'm pretty broad in my interests and 
partially that's just because my projects have led in that direction. So Sure. And that's good. I mean, it's it's one thing to specialize and it's another thing to kind of have a, a, a wide eye out for anything because you never know, I guess, when you split a rock, what's going to turn up and it just takes one fossil to completely sort of change a trajectory, I'm assuming, or it can happen that way. But before we get into some of the bigger picture climatic sort of things that you're able to find out, I'm curious more about the fossils you were uncovering and then working with. Were there any groups that stood out? Were there anything that surprised you? You know, what were some of the more important fossils during your, your time working on this and doing all of this research that really kind of shaped some of the bigger picture stories and information that you were able to to tell with these data? Yeah, so I think the the ones that were the most exciting in the field were the fossil flowers. Fossil flowers in general do not preserve that well. To find, especially at a a few quarries at the site that I worked at most extensively, to find multiple different types of flowers, many of which had in-situ pollen, that gives a a lot of characters. And most modern plants are described and named and grouped based on their reproductive characters. I mean, now we have all the molecular data, so that's kind of moved things in a different direction. But Before we had all the molecular data, things were described and grouped based on those reproductive characters. So finding those are really exciting. Finding lots of things that are native today to Asia and Africa and thinking, okay, these are there now. They must have had a much wider distribution in the past if we're finding them in the Rocky Mountain region of North America. And there's no modern relatives even living in, say, the new world today. Those are really exciting. And at first, it makes you question, like, have I identified this correctly? (laughs) But then you find other things that are following that same trend. And, you know, when you're like, I have eliminated everything else that I feel this could be. And when you have multiple things in in the flora, that, that does strengthen that. And we see that trend, a lot of similarities between things in North America and the fossil record in the Cenozoic, showing up in Eastern Asia and in their fossil record, but also in their modern forest today. So we see a lot of kind of what we term nearest living relatives locally, not in North America, not even in the New World, but in Asia and Africa in these old world areas. So those those are always surprising. And then just finding things that are new or finding things that you know have not been described in the scientific literature. Um, those are some of the most exciting things. When you look at this, you're like, I have no idea what this is, but this has so much potential. And it's one of those things you just like want to stop and figure it out right there. And you're like, well, I have 70 other things to do right now. But <laughs> Rain it in. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. Um, I guess we, I, I, I want to talk about both of those things, but what are some examples of the fossils that you found that do have modern representatives in Asia and that, that were once widespread? Are there genres that we would recognize right off the bat? What were some of them that you were able to kind of piece together? Yeah, so a couple of things, things in the Icassinaceae family, which is in the, the base of the lamiad clade of the Asterids. And so that's phylogenetically, that family has moved around. But that today, like Iodes, the main genus in that family is found in the paleotropics of Africa and Asia today. And and it has an extensive uh, fossil record in North America and also extending into Europe, especially in the paleogene, kind of since about 65 million years ago. Another example would be Phoenix, which is the genus of date palms. So today Hmm. we find that in the Middle East and parts of uh, a little bit into Africa, a little bit into into Asia, but centered around the Middle East. 
and to find flowers with in-situ pollen that both the floral characters and the pollen characters match with that genus, not only at this site, but in a few other sites in the greater Rocky Mountain region. That was really exciting. And it was like, wow, there were date palms growing here. It also was interesting because the Bridger Formation, where this material is coming from, is really well known for its mammal fauna. And there had been years and years of study on the mammal fauna. And based on a lot of the mammals hypothesized to be arboreal, lots of primates, I was like, okay, well, what are, what are the trees that these things are living in? What hmm. could they be eating? And to think, okay, they could be eating these dates. Humans love dates, so why wouldn't these fossil primates like dates? For so sure. That was interesting, for sure. That's so cool. And and Metasequoia, I think I remember reading, was, was the Don Redwood part of the flora of North America at one point in time as well? Or some you know, extinct, now extinct representative of Metasequoia? Yeah, Metasequoia was found in the fossil record. So I don't have it at my site, but Metasequoia is one of those really weird plants that was actually described from the fossil record before we found living hmm. examples of it. So it was described from the fossil record and there's kind of a small native population in, in a part of China today. And now you can see it at botanical gardens and arboretums. But it was described from fossils first. And um, I do want to mention that for my postdoc, I was at Florissant Fossil Beds National Monument, and they have huge stumps of redwood trees. So Metasquoia is the dawn redwood, but these are kind of most closely related to coast redwood, which wow. today are in California and southern Oregon. So there was full-on probably 200-foot redwood trees growing wow. in central Colorado about 34 million years ago. And to me, that's just like wild because they're, they have such a re like restricted habitat today, the, the relatives. And we have the site in Colorado has both the tree stumps, so we have the wood, and we also have cones and foliage. So we have wow. kind of all parts of the, the plant, not necessarily connected, but yeah, there's <laughs> a lot to look at with that as well. That is remarkable. And, and it's just so much fodder for a curious mind to think about how different it had to have been for these species to be where they are today. Because ge geologically speaking, the continents haven't moved much since the Eocene. So it's not like we were dealing with everything was just at the equator and much warmer and happier. It's just the climate of the globe was so drastically different that you know, these species that, like you said, we think of as so restricted in their current area were once widespread. And then, you know, you can get into so many different questions, which we won't do today, about why North America's stuff went extinct and where we still have stuff living in Asia. It's so much fodder to think about and, and just and many lifetimes of, of questions to be answered. And, and just that thought that the next rock could unearth another clue in this, this big investigation. But speaking of unearthing new clues, what were some of the unique things you were able to describe or, or pull out of the rocks that you, you, you were very excited about? Um, one of those is a, a flower that I'm still in the process of describing, um, and it's likely a member of the Salicaceae or Willow family, the, the broader circumscription of the family. So initially, Salicaceae was just poplars and willows, and now we've added a lot of tropical and subtropical elements to that family circumscription. So that flower was one of my like very well-preserved but mystery flowers. It has eight perianth parts, lots of stamens, little nectary glands at the base of the perianth parts. And it was one of those where you're like, this has so many good characters. Plus, I was able to get pollen from the stamens and look at that with light microscopy and scanning electron microscopy. Nice. 
And so that, I was just like, what is this? And finally narrowed it down to that family. And that's a project that I'm collaborating on with someone who works on neotropical Salicacy taxa. So that's been really fun. The woods were also a surprise. So the wood diversity at that site is relatively low, just about seven taxa. But there's no gymnosperm macrofossils, which is really weird, except for a single piece of pine wood. So there's gymnosperms in the microflora, pines and spruce and a few other things in the dispersed pollen. But the macrofossils, there was no foliage, no cones, and that just, it was really odd. But I think it's because a lot of these quarries are preserving really local things, and it may have been a little bit too warm and wet for the gymnosperms to be happy. And this piece of conifer wood looked like it had been on a journey uh, was not very well preserved, so it probably came in from from some distance, not not in situ, not local. Um, but it was exciting to find a macrofossil of a gymnosperm. And yeah, some of the wood was really fun to to work on. Found a legume tree, lots of wood in the Anacardiaceae or sumac family, um, and that wood is really interesting because it has these radial canals that would carry resins. So things in this family like poison ivy, you know, the structures that are carrying that resin that you can get when you make the mistake of <laughs> brushing up against it. So you can actually see preserved in the wood those canals that would have carried those chemical compounds. And obviously when it's petrified, you don't have that chemistry information, but you can see evidence of it when you see the structures that would have carried those resins. And then, yeah, lots of exciting things with, with the leaves. I mean, it's it's always equally exciting to find things that have already been described before because you kind of get an instant picture of the flora if it's already described in the literature, yeah. as well as those new things where you're like, I have no idea what this is, but it has great characters. It's really interesting, and I want to figure it out. But it takes a little bit longer to kind of add to that floral picture because you don't know what it is yet. Right. Wow, that's it's so exciting. And for someone that is passionate and, and really into what they're doing, that it's so rewarding. I mean, it's just like I said, it's a lifetime of just fun things you get to explore. And, you know, the ins and outs of work days are one thing, but just to be able to show up and fill in a big blank in the history of life on this planet is just, it must be very rewarding for you. But Again, when you're describing all of this, one of the things that constantly stands out to me is just the amount of detective work that you have to do, the forensic level of investigation that's needed on pieces of wood to be able to find resin ducts or understand that it is a gymnosperm representative or looking for pollen on these anthers or stamens. And and I'm curious, you know, that's very great for describing species and looking at sort of these smaller scale questions, but how do you go from this sort of detective work of looking at structure of wood and leaves and scale that up to say something really about the climate of that time period and to ground truth a lot of what the models say with with actual physical evidence from that time period? How do you go from from the micro scale with within reason to this macro scale climatic investigation? Sure. Well, there's there's two kind of broad approaches when you're trying to use plant fossils to look at paleoclimate. So you can go in the taxonomic direction. So that is based on the specimens that you have identified, that you're confident, that you know what they are. You can look at that material's nearest living relatives. So you can say, okay, I have a fossil palm tree. It's this genus. Now I go look at where that genus lives today. And you want to do that for as many specimens as possible. So 
you're like, okay, I have 20 things that I'm really confident in my identification, then you'd want to look at the climate conditions that all 20 of those, the relatives of the fossil taxa live today. And you kind of, the newer approach for this is the, the coexistence approach where you look at where the climate tolerances of all of your fossils nearest living relatives overlap, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. You would say you have your pine tree, your palm, your willow relative, your walnut relative, whatever they may be. And you say, okay, here's the nearest living relatives. These are the temperature ranges. These are the precipitation ranges. And you see where they overlap. And th that method is really good because we know that some families are very specific to certain climate regimes. And that's great because you can work with any plant organ. So if you have wood, if you have leaves, if you have flowers, whatever you have identified, you can throw it into this analysis and get estimates of paleoclimate. I haven't done that a ton myself, but other than just kind of discussing like this species is frost intolerant or similar, I've done more with looking at physiognomy, specifically with leaves. So this is like leaf morphological characters that provide information about climate. So there are known trends in modern floras that have been described. Going back, this is literature back to about 1915, 1916. So it's been more than a century where we've kind of been throwing these ideas back and forth. So leaves that are larger tend to come from wetter climates, wetter environments, and leaves that have teeth tend to come from colder environments. So those kind of two observations form the underlying theory behind multiple paleoclimate methods where you look at leaf physiognomic or leaf morphological characters and use them to estimate paleoclimate. That is so cool. As, you know, I'm currently working in the world of functional trait ecology, but just to know how useful these sorts of investigations can be across a wide swath of, of fields, but also questions that can be asked and, and, and inference. But as someone that is looking back in time, constantly thinking about this time period in Earth's history, do you get a little bit alarmed knowing what things were like during that time period and then looking forward at some of the projections that we see for, you know, what we're going to get in, in one human generation into the future? I mean, we, we could hypothesize and, and, and theorize about this all day, but you have a unique perspective to bring to the table on climate change and what that does to vegetation and ecosystems as a whole. And, and you know, do you see some alarming trends that might suggest that, wow, things if they change fast, it might change a lot more than just uh, the, you know, the mean average temperature. <laughs> right. No, I definitely do get alarmed. And um, what really scares me is a lot of people bring up the argument, well, we've had warm temperatures in the past and everything's been fine. But what's, what's scary is the rate that they're increasing now. So geologically, things happen very slowly. Even when we say something happened quickly geologically, we're talking at a minimum thousands of years. Hmm. So paleo-eocene thermal maximum, for example, there was a huge swing in temperature. And that's thought to be anywhere from, say, 10 to 100,000 years time span. But we're still talking thousands of years, even though it was really fast geologically. Yeah. And now we're seeing these massive changes in temperature and changes in ecosystems over the span of decades or maybe 100 years. And that is really alarming because things cannot adapt and evolve on those timescales. So we're likely to see lots of extinctions because things, you know, things cannot migrate that quickly. Things cannot evolve that quickly. 
and and humans really are having a big impact. So we're having a big impact with our influence on the increase in global temperatures, but also we're just kind of nudging our way into these environments and ecosystems and causing pollution, whether intentional or not, in a lot of these areas. So it is scary and alarming. And, you know, when people try and use the argument, well, we've had warm temperatures in the past, I can agree with them. But what I can't agree with is that the rate of how these changes are happening is totally different. And the scale is just not comparable. So Yeah, and not to mention whether it's a plant or an animal, even if it had thousands of years to migrate or move to a a more favorable climate, they didn't have vast amounts of cities, suburban landscapes, and and farmland, uh, you know, pretty much inhospitable territory to have to cross. So even just the rate at which we're fragmenting things is alarming. But again, that this that could probably is a podcast devoted to just that out there. (laughs) I'm sure. But again, a unique perspective to bring to the table. And that's why I love paleontologists so much is because zooming out, who has a better, bigger picture of of life on this planet and how things can change and the speed at which things can change than than someone in the paleo community. But, you know, you've got this new faculty position. You've got a lot of uh, exciting adventures to come. What are you most excited about? What kind of questions do you want to explore into the future? You know, what, what, what is, what's next? Oh man. Uh, <laughs> well, when you're new faculty, what's next is usually what you're teaching the next day. Um, <laughs> but um, research wise, I have more questions than I feel like I have time to answer, but I definitely want to continue to identify. I have so many unknown things at this point. Uh, with my flora. So I have still dozens of things that have really good potential to be identified, but I haven't been able to identify them. So really continuing that detective work, looking at the characters, looking at modern material, reaching out to other experts to get their opinions. So lots to do with that. And kind of the newest area that I just got into was working down in Peru. Uh, my first foray into some international fieldwork and international project. So there's a site down there in the northern Peruvian Andes that's about 39 million years old. So it's still in the Eocene, same general geologic time period, but it has both fossilized wood and fossilized leaves. And this is a project that's in, in collaboration with Herb Meyer at Fluorescent Fossil Beds and also Deborah Woodcock. Uh, she's affiliated with Clark University. And the leaves there really have not been described or documented, whereas they've done a really good job documenting a lot of the wood flora. So I would like to to look at those leaves and see if they have similar, if they're similar species to the woods, potentially what paleoclimate questions they could open our eyes to. And also, being that I've never worked on um, South American material, are there any similarities with all of this, what I have Mm. more with up in North America, um, or is it just totally different and there's really no comparison? Because sometimes you find really weird overlaps in the taxonomic composition, and sometimes you're just like, nope, there is no similarity. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, how exciting. It's, again, plenty of things on the horizon for you to investigate, and and please stay in touch. I, I would love to know as you find and describe more things as, uh, you know, what you're finding. I mean, this is all very exciting horizons to to be looking forward to. Yeah, well, it's been great talking to you, Matt, and I hope you get lots of people following your podcast because I definitely enjoy your blog yeah. and your podcast. And it's it's been really fun to chat about my research and 
both things that I've already worked on and things that I'm hoping to work on in the future. Well, thank you very much. And if people want to find out more about your work, how do you recommend they, they look out for you? Oh, well, they're definitely welcome to um, email me. All my information is on the Penn State Altoona website. Uh, you can find how to contact me there. And hopefully in the future, I'll have a little bit more of an online presence, but haven't gotten that far um, at this point. Yeah, you've got plenty on your plate. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. This has been fantastic, and I think uh, everyone learned quite a bit and have some food for thought moving into the next week, uh, just in terms of what we're doing and and what has happened in the past. So thanks thanks again. All right. Thanks, Matt. Have a great day. You too. Lots of food for thought in that one. I thank Dr. Allen for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us. You should go check out her papers. I've posted links to her research page on Penn State's website. The fossils she's finding are remarkable. The preservation in detail is just, it's, it's eerie, especially if you're familiar with some of the plant families she was talking about. I always like getting the perspective of paleontologists because, I don't know, I just think they have a much better picture of how life changes and, and how life responds to changes in climate and geology. It's remarkable stuff, and I thank her again for all the work she puts in on understanding the flora of this time period. Just a reminder, we have new merch for sale, teespring.com slash stores slash indefensive plants. Go check it out. I think you'll be excited by some of the stuff that's available. Just remember that 10% of every purchase is being donated to the Rainforest Trust. Don't forget to check out Patreon, patreon.com slash indefensive plants. A special shout out to our latest producer credits. We have Brandon and Gwen. Thank you so much for your contribution to the show. I literally couldn't be doing this without people like Brandon and Gwen and every other amazing patron who has taken time and money to support this podcast. I really appreciate it. If money isn't your thing, at the very least, consider subscribing to and reviewing this podcast on whatever pod portal you use to download it. So until next week, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.